You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Mark chapter 7, verse 24, through chapter 9, which include the following four topics. Salvation comes through Israel. Second, God ministers to us through the humanity of Christ. Third, knowledge of Christ leads us into his mysteries. And fourth, union with Christ is our strength. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the second gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about Salvation Comes Through Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. We begin this lesson with an account of the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. Scripture tells us that Jesus goes into the territory of Tyre. St. Mark tells us, At once a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and came and fell at his feet. Now this woman was a Gentile, by birth a Syrophoenician, and she begged him to drive the devil out of her daughter. And he said to her, The children should be fed first, because it is not fair to take the children's food and to throw it to the little dogs. But she spoke up. Ah, yes, sir, she replied, but little dogs under the table eat the scraps from the children. And Jesus said to her, For saying this, you may go home happy. The devil has gone out of your daughter. So she went off home and found the child lying on the bed and the devil gone. Jesus' words to her initially probably perplex us, and perhaps they even seem a bit harsh, because she has come to him to appeal to him to heal her daughter. Without a doubt, she had heard about Jesus as so many people in the hillside, in the country land, had been hearing about him. And for this reason, wherever Jesus went, people, crowds, gathered around him because they wanted the same healing miracles that they had been hearing about with regard to Jesus' ministry. And when she appeals to him, his reply astounds us. He says that the children should be fed first. He tells her, as we hear in other accounts of the Gospels, that he is sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's as if he is calling her and her family some lesser kind of being. He uses the analogy that the children must be fed first. It's not fair to take their food and to throw it to little dogs, as if to insult her. Now, Jesus' 
not, of course, offending or insulting her, but he is, he is directing everyone in his midst to the deeper, the greater truth present among them, and he is teaching them about God's plan. So frequently when Jesus says something, it gives us pause, and we have to think deeply about what it is he is saying, and in pondering the mystery of Christ's words, we lay hold of the plan that God has put in place from the beginning in the Old Testament, which he fulfills in the New Testament. Now, what God is saying to Israel, Israel is God's chosen instrument of salvation. To understand this passage, we have to go back and we have to think about what God reveals about Israel in the beginning. Israel is chosen, not because of any merits of its own. And in fact, Judah is the least of the clans. It's because it's simply because of God's divine prerogative that he chooses Israel. Israel is first. He chooses Israel and sets them apart. He calls them, chooses them, sets them apart, and makes of them a holy nation. As the scriptures tell us, and as the church still acknowledges to the present day, that Israel is blessed from the very beginning. As St. Paul says, to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and, and this is important, according to the flesh, the Christ. It is from Israel salvation comes. God has, from the beginning, been speaking to us about a body that he will prepare for himself. This is Israel in the beginning. The fulfillment of this body God prepares for himself is Christ, the person of Christ, the incarnate God-made man. Christ is a Jew. Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. Christ comes out of Israel. Therefore, salvation comes through Israel. Now, this is important. So, Israel is important, is, as we hear in the scriptures, even in the New Testament, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart. Israel is the preparation for Jesus Christ the preparation for the gospel that will be revealed in his person. Now, Israel is set apart in the beginning. Israel is not sent out in the same way that the church, the body of Christ, is sent out in the new age, the age of the New Testament, or the age of the new covenant. Why? Because all things, God's plan, had not yet come to its fulfillment. The body that God prepared for himself must have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of Christ's Spirit is in the church. Only once a people has been prepared by God, set apart, made holy, given a share in the priesthood of the high priest, Only then is that people prepared to be sent out. We cannot go out until we have first received. We have to receive the word of God. We cannot give 
what we do not already have, what we do not possess. There is a way in which Israel in the Old Testament could not give what she did not yet possess, which was the fullness of Christ and his Holy Spirit. The mission of Christ and the Spirit had not yet been fulfilled in Israel. The Messiah had not yet come. In the age of the church, though, this is all fulfilled. With the coming of Christ, the scripture which says that when God says a body I have prepared for me, this is fulfilled in the Son of God. Now, how is all this connected to the doctrine that outside the church there is no salvation? As we have said, salvation comes through Israel. There is a way in which the church is the new Israel. St. Paul speaks of this at the end of his letter to the Galatians when he talks of the Israel of God. The church is formed in Jesus Christ, from the heart of Christ, and he pours out his spirit upon his church. Christ is the head of his church, and all who live in Christ, who are baptized in Christ, who have faith in Christ, are members of his body. The church is the mystical body of Jesus Christ himself on earth. His spirit is present in the church. His voice is heard in the church. His miraculous works are carried forth in the life of the church. The church is, in a mystical but very true way, the body of Christ on earth. Now, when the church says that outside Christ, outside the church there is no salvation, she fully understands that she is also saying, outside Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. We know without a doubt that there is one Redeemer, one Savior, that there is one door, one way, one gate to the Heavenly Father. Our access to the Father comes only through His Son, Jesus Christ. But in the revelation of Christ, Jesus institutes the church as the instrument of our salvation. And in this church, the structure that he ordains for the church is an apostolic structure. God, in Christ, Jesus Christ, forms the church as the fulfillment of God's plan. So as the church says, in speaking of her doctrine outside the church, there is no salvation, the church says reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head, through the church, which is his body. This we understand. This makes sense to us. Now, there is a way in which the church, Christ on earth, must go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She has a food, a heavenly food, which she feeds to her own children. And this food is the body and blood of the Savior of Christ. In carrying forth, though, the message of salvation, because God has revealed from the Old Testament times into the New, that salvation is for all. God wills that all be saved. Every person God creates, he loves infinitely, and every person God creates, he wills salvation for that person. But salvation, when given to us, There are always, in God's plan, those who receive first and those who receive later. 
We do not begrudge Israel for having received first. We are blessed in Israel. We are blessed in the faith of Abraham. We are blessed in those who have gone before us, marked with the sign of faith. We don't respond like like sad children who, in the presence of the Father, giving a gift or blessing to another child, says, why isn't that mine? Why can't I have it first? The all-loving, all-generous Father knows why he gives what he gives and when he gives it. Whatever God gives, in one way or another, redounds to the profit of all in the end. The church, in imitation of Christ, following in the footsteps of Christ, goes to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but does not deny the blessings and gifts to anyone who comes to Christ in faith, such as the Syrophoenician woman did. She expressed faith, and Christ responded to that faith. And she received at the hands of Christ his healing power because she recognized the Messiah in the person of Christ. There is a way in which the church goes to, seeks out her own people, Catholics, for example, who have fallen away from the church. And there is a way in which the church seeks to draw into her bosom all Christians, not only Catholics, but the entire Church of Jesus Christ, those who do not share fully in the means of salvation. After all, because in the person of Christ are found the fullness of the means of salvation, therefore to the Church, through the Apostles, has been entrusted the fullness of the means of salvation. This is not something that anyone needs to be upset by or jealous of. It's not as if the Church says, we possess the fullness of the means of salvation, and it's not for the rest of you, it's for us. Her proclamation from the first days of her life in Christ was that we possess the riches and the fullness of Christ Come and share in our joy, so that our joy may be complete. What she says, she repeats the words of the prophet Isaiah, who says, Come to the water, all you who are thirsty. Though you have no money, come, buy and eat for free. Buy wine and milk without money, free. Come to this feast, which has been prepared for by God, and share in it. It's not like the church is saying, we have all of this and you can't have it. She is saying, look what we possess, and it is yours too. It belongs to you. But that is an invitation for people to respond in faith. What is this fullness of the means of salvation? In the church resides the correct and complete confession of our faith, the full sacramental life the full sacramental life of Jesus Christ, the seven sacraments. As the church tells us, in the sacraments, powers come forth from the body of Christ. We will touch on this again in a minute in the next question. And finally, the ordained ministry in apostolic succession. So salvation comes through Israel, and outside the church there is no salvation. The church is the mystical body of Christ on earth really and truly. It's not just some abstract concept. There is a truth, a reality present in the body of Christ, the church on earth.
The next question deals with the healing miracles of Jesus. And what we are struck by is that Jesus, in healing those who came to him, healed in tangible ways, in audible ways. He touched them with his hands. He used his spittle to touch their tongue. He put his fingers in their ears. Christ uses his own humanity and even natural elements around us as signs and symbols, as signs and instruments through which his miraculous powers come forth to heal people. God is teaching us that he ministers to us through the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ, there is power in this. The fullness of divinity dwells within the humanity of Christ in bodily form, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians. Now, we are corporal and spiritual beings, and the healing that God wills for us is a healing that affects us both in body and in soul. Not only is our soul destined for the resurrection at the end, but as we know, we are destined for the resurrection of the body. So in some way, God is handing over to us this mystery already now in our life on earth. He wills wholeness and healing for life, not only in soul, but in body also. Christ is speaking to us about the sacramental life of the church that he institutes for our salvation through the healing miracles when he uses concrete, tangible, audible realities in the many healing miracles that we encounter in the Gospels. The words of Jesus, the touch of Jesus, he uses things that we find in the sacramental life of the church now. Water in the sacrament of the Eucharist, bread and wine, oil is used in the sacraments. And of course, we have the words, as we have said. Because of how God has created us, we are intelligent beings. Therefore, the signs and symbols in the created reality are intelligible to us. There are certain characteristics of water, bread, wine, and oil which makes sense to us. We understand their characteristics and how they are used in human life. God applies this. There is an intelligibility to what God is doing in his choice and in the choice made with regard to the sacramental elements in the church. What's interesting is that when people look at the sacraments of the Catholic Church, there is a tendency to say it's just oil, it's just the laying on of hands, it's just bread, it's just wine. We tend to see in these signs something which is so ordinary, so inconsequential, so seemingly inadequate, that certainly God's power could not be working through these signs. Jesus himself shows us that this is exactly God's plan. God respects the nature in which he has created us. And he uses that to communicate his power and truth to us. It's part of God's plan. It's part of both the transcendence and the imminence of God.
We can't help but be reminded of that beautiful story in the second book of Kings, where Naaman the Syrian, he is an Aramean, but they were part of the the Assyrian kingdom. And Jesus, in referring to Naaman the Syrian, we encounter this in the Gospel of St. Luke, calls him the Syrian. He had a virulent skin disease, most probably leprosy, and wanted to be healed. And in their warring with the Israelites, his family had taken on a slave girl who was an Israelite, and she wanted her master to be healed. And so she informs him that there is a prophet who can heal him and that he should go to him. It is Elisha that she is speaking of. The king of Israel at first, when Naaman goes to him, he says, why are you coming to me to cause me this kind of grief? He didn't want that kind of pressure put on him to have Naaman healed because Naaman had faith to believe that there was a powerful God among the people in Israel who could heal him. This is what the young girl had testified to him. But Elijah says, what's the commotion about? He seeks him out, he finds him. And Elisha the prophet says, go and bathe seven times in the Jordan, you will be cleansed. What is Naaman's initial reaction? He says, that sounds stupid to me. Why go and do that? It's so small. It's so meaningless. If I'm going to bathe anywhere, he says, there are better rivers in Damascus. He said, I could go and bathe in the Parpar or the Abana. He doesn't understand this. And his servants say to him, Father, they call him Father, they say, if he had asked you to do something seemingly great, something out of the ordinary, you certainly would have done that, wouldn't you have? He said, why not do the simple thing that he has given you? He rethinks it, and he goes and bathes in the Jordan. And he is cleansed, and his skin is made as the skin of a young child, Scripture tells us. So, We have, in this Old Testament story, but a real event, God is speaking to us already about the sacramental life and the power that comes forth from the body of Christ through very simple signs and instruments of God's saving work. Through water and His Word, through oil, and through touch. And of course, in the Eucharist, we have the transubstantiation, the complete change in substance of the bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. God is powerfully at work, but do we have the faith to accept this, or are we too much like Naaman the Syrian? Even in the new age of the church, even in spite of all the miracles that we know that God has performed for his people. There is one other element we want to touch on briefly, and that is in the second miracle where Jesus cures the blind man of Bethsaida. This is in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. Scripture tells us that Jesus put spittle on his eyes and laying his hands on him, Jesus said, Can you see anything? The man who was beginning to see replied, I can see people, they look like trees as they walk around. Then Jesus laid his hands on the man's eyes again, and he saw clearly. He was cured. He could see everything plainly and distinctly. God reveals to us that 
Sometimes healing, even miraculous healing that he gives us, takes place gradually through time. Out of respect for our humanity, the fact that God has put us in time, he works in time, and his miracles take place in time, if this is how God wills it. You notice that it is through repeated contact with the humanity of Jesus that the man is completely and perfectly healed. Jesus asks him what he can see, and at first he sees somewhat, but not plainly and distinctly, because people look like trees. As we become more and more healed in Christ, we see the world around us more plainly and distinctly. We see it in the truth in which it has been created. And you notice that at the end when the healing was complete, he says that he could see man. He could see clearly and plainly man. Man made in God's image and likeness. In other words, God is is speaking to us about the enlightenment, the clarity of vision and understanding that we have the more we are healed in Christ. And soon, as scripture says, he was cured and he could see everything plainly and distinctly. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering Knowledge of Christ Leads Us into His Mysteries. And now, back to Dr. George. Question number two has several parts to it, and it begins by pointing out the fact that in Scripture, although things are presented one after another, they're frequently in most Bibles, even in good translations, they're broken into sections, they're divided into chapters, verse numbers, and even within the chapters we often find subtitles. Now, this is something which has occurred over the centuries in the church, beginning with in the 13th century when there were the earliest divisions of Scripture, and it has continued down into the 16th century and in the years following that. The point being that when we pick up a Bible and read it, we cannot help but notice the division, the portions, the little sections. In the Gospels of Christ, for example, we read in small packages. We read in separate events. And that's fine. We can approach the events We can isolate them and ponder them one at a time. But we must not forget that when the Gospels were written, they were written as a continuum, as one full extended testimony. The same is true with the letters of Paul or the letters of any of the apostles. There is a benefit to be gained from reading sacred scripture sometimes as a continuum and not paying attention to the divisions or the breaks because we begin to see certain relationships between the events, how very closely they are all interconnected, how one thing leads to another and to another in a sequence. And that's part of the point of question number two of this lesson. What we have in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8 is a rather quick 
sequence or movement from Peter's profession of faith to Jesus' first prophecy of the Passion, followed by a section where Jesus talks about the conditions for being his disciples or follower, and then ending with what is the beginning of chapter 9 for us, the transfiguration as it is recorded by St. Mark. Now, if we were to read this as simply one event, we would discover some amazing things and the order in which it all takes place. There is no accident to the way in which St. Mark has set this down. We begin with the profession of faith. Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, others again one of the prophets, because of course he was a great teacher and he performed miracles. Jesus says, and this is very important, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? This is a question that Jesus poses to each and every one of us in our lifetime. And not only once, but very often any number of times. And we discover that we answer the question differently as we go through life and as we grow in our faith. The question, of course, is posed after many spectacular miracles. But when Peter responds that he is the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus says, we find this recorded in the other Gospels, he says, man has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. It is through divine revelation that we know and believe this, that we can say Jesus is the Christ in faith. As scripture tells us, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit. It is in the Spirit that we are capable of saying this. Jesus accepts Peter's profession of faith by announcing his imminent passion, the church tells us in the Catechism. Peter has shown, he has given evidence, that he is ready for this next step, and that is to hear the prophecy of Jesus' own passion. Now, he has just announced him as the Messiah, no doubt, in part, because he sees the miraculous powers. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do. He casts out demons. The wind and the sea obey him. He is the Messiah. Jesus then tells his disciples that the Son of Man is destined to suffer grievously, to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and to be put to death and after three days to rise again. He said all this quite openly. At this point, Peter takes him aside. Peter tried to rebuke Jesus. Turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God thinks, but as human beings do. He is thinking in only two human ways, not unlike how we think sometimes, in two human ways. We know the story. We know how it ends. We know the story of the passion and death of Christ. In spite of knowing this, because it had not yet been fulfilled, in spite of knowing this, it's difficult for us to grasp. Jesus, in a unique way, fulfills the passion and death because he is the Son of God. But there is a unique way in which 
each and every one of us is called to fulfill our part in the passion and death of Christ. And this is in part what God is revealing, what Jesus is revealing to Peter and to the other of his disciples. The passion and death is necessary for the reparation of sin. It's necessary that we enter into the passion and death of Christ because only by being united to his passion and death can we be raised up with Christ. In baptism, what is it that happens? We pass through, we enter into, we are immersed in the death of Christ, the passion and death of Christ, so that in him we are raised up to new life. After baptism, even though we remain on earth in body and soul, we are secured in Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. There is a way in which we already are a resurrected people after baptism. We live that life in Christ and we live with his spirit, the spirit that Christ has, the risen Christ. We live with his spirit, that spirit in us. There is a whole new power. We are transformed. We are configured to Christ in baptism. That transformation, that transfiguration, is what Christ will very shortly after reveal to him. Six days later, we find that at the beginning of chapter 9. So there is no, there's no resurrection without first the passion and death. There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. This is something that we have to come to understand that this reality informs our lives. In understanding Jesus, we don't simply look at this person who suffered this as if he is distant from us, it's all completed, and we watch the mystery. No, we enter into the mystery. And it is only through knowledge an ever-deepening knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we are led deeper and deeper into the mystery. We are not separated from it. We have entered into, we have been inserted into the mystery of Christ. And that knowledge is something that we grow in by degrees. And at first, when we are first aware of it, it's rather shocking to us. We recoil from suffering as Peter recoiled from it. He was almost scandalized by it when Jesus tells him about this. Jesus says, it's recorded at the end of the Gospel of St. Luke. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. Before the ascension, he is walking with the men on the road to Emmaus, and he says, you foolish men, so slow to believe all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer before entering into his glory? Scripture tells us, Then starting with Moses and going through the prophets, Jesus explained to them the passages throughout the scriptures that were about himself. Who is it who is testifying to Jesus at the transfiguration but Moses and Elijah? And what is it that St. Luke tells us they are talking about at the transfiguration? The Passover. They are still, they were back when they were alive on earth, they are still speaking about in their words, in their actions, they are speaking about the life, passion, and death of Jesus Christ. This is the conversation of the transfiguration. 
this very matter. Peter comes to understand this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he is drawn into deeper knowledge of Christ and a greater ability to live this mystery. After Christ suffers his passion and dies, as we know from the end of the Gospel of St. John, he appears on the shores of Tiberias to the apostles, and he pulls Peter aside, who is head of the church, and he talks to him, and he tells him, In truth, Jesus says, I tell you, when you were young, you put on your own belt and walked where you liked, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will put a belt around you and take you where you would rather not go. These words could well be for all of us. When we are young, God gives us a certain freedom. We are not yet ready to hear exactly what the fullness of the message will require of us as true followers of Jesus Christ. As Jesus says before he enters his passion, he says to his disciples, I have more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. This is true for all of us. Even today, Jesus has more to tell us, but he knows we can't bear it now. And God, in respecting our human nature, he draws us degree by degree into healing, into deeper knowledge of himself, into a greater embracing of the mystery of the life of Christ. Of course, what happens at the end is, we find out in St. Luke's account of Acts of the Apostles, Peter, once he receives the Spirit of Christ, he goes forth with the other apostles, fearlessly, courageously proclaiming the gospel. The Sanhedrin takes them, they imprison them, and then they beat them, they flog them, and they release them only after they command them that they must never speak in the name again. They have them flog and command. They warn them never to speak in the name of Gem. And what does Scripture tell us? That the apostles left there glad to have had the honor of suffering humiliation for the sake of the name. What does Scripture tell us next? Every day they went on ceaselessly teaching and proclaiming the good news of Christ Jesus, both in the temple and in their private houses. Peter was no longer afraid. At the end of his life, how did he die? Like Christ, he was crucified. The very thing that scandalized him in the beginning, God prepared him to enter fully into that mystery, to embrace his unique part in the suffering, in the passion and death of Christ. And when his executioners set about to crucify him, he refused to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. He asked to be crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way that his master had been crucified. This is the St. Peter who has rebuked Jesus after hearing the first prophecy of his passion. When he writes his letters, we have two beautiful letters of St. Peter in the New Testament. And what is it he is telling the churches? He is saying, no one can hurt you. No one can hurt you if you are determined to do only what is right. And blessed are you if you have to suffer for being upright. Have no dread of them. Have no fear. Simply proclaim the Lord Christ holy in your hearts and always have your answer ready for those who ask you the reason for the hope that you have. St. Rose of Lima tells us that apart from the cross, there is no other ladder 
She calls the cross a ladder. There's no other ladder by which we may get to heaven than the cross. That is the ladder we must all step upward as we ascend in knowledge of God and as we ascend even in the mysteries of Christ. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Union with Christ is Our Strength. And now, back to Dr. George. And then finally, the Transfiguration. Before this, immediately before the Transfiguration, where Jesus overhears, and there are several instances in the readings for this lesson, where Jesus overhears, well, the apostles are at a distance, but he knows what they've been talking about. And when he's in their presence again, he asks them what they've been talking about. And it's usually who's the greatest and things like this. And he says, no, you don't understand. And he explains to them, and this is at the end of chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, if anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him renounce himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. There is something in, and we've run across this in other of the readings for this lesson, where Jesus is revealing to us that radical transformation we must go through, that radical conversion of heart, that total turning over of our hearts, our lives to God, and turning away from all sin and all evil, of becoming detached from the world. In other words, this totality in following him, of giving up everything for the sake of him, for the sake of his gospel. This is a difficult thing for us to come to terms with. But God gives us time to grapple with it. And as long as we respond, he gives us that faith. The St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that faith leads to faith. Faith leads to more faith. Hope leads to more hope. Charity to more charity. So we then encounter the account of the transfiguration which is very important. Jesus discloses his divine glory as a confirmation to Peter's confession. The church speaks of this in the catechism. The transfiguration is a foretaste. It is a glimpse of the glorified Christ. What is very important about this is that the apostles had to come to understand that Jesus' passion and death was voluntary. Jesus speaks of his passion and death, and six days later he reveals to them the transfiguration, his glory. All of this is part of God's plan, and he voluntarily, he willingly embraces the will of the Father. The church, in speaking of the profundity of the transfiguration, places it in light of what inaugurates Jesus' public ministry. In the Catechism, the Church tells us that on the threshold of the public life, we have the baptism. On the threshold of the Passover, 
the transfiguration. Jesus' baptism proclaimed the mystery of the first regeneration that is our baptism. His transfiguration reveals the, the very reality of the second regeneration, which is our own resurrection. So there is that first regeneration which occurs in baptism. It will be fulfilled and completed in the second regeneration, which is our own resurrection. All of this, though, is, as we said, it's part of one package. It is the answer to the question of who Jesus is. It is growing in knowledge of Christ, and that knowledge includes his passion and death. But it also points to the resurrection and is completed. It is brought to its fulfillment in the resurrection. Finally, our last question has several parts that deal with, again, miracles of Jesus healing people and delivering them from evil spirits. In the first, in the middle of chapter 9, we have the incident of the epileptic demoniac. And the apostles have come to Jesus, or the father with his boy, have gone to Jesus when they find him coming into the territory. And the apostles are there. And he says that he has asked the apostles to deliver the son from the evil spirit, and they could not do so. Now, it's interesting, it's amazing, really, that the apostles, even in their earthly life, while Jesus was still with them, already shared in the miraculous power of Christ. So there were others that were already going to the apostles, but they could do nothing for this man and his boy. And Jesus, of course, calls them a faithless generation. Faithless. They have not had the faith to deliver the boy. They have not had the power to deliver the boy because they don't have the faith to deliver the boy. He says, how much longer must I be with you? Now, what is God telling us through this? Well, first of all, that the apostles do what is right in this situation. They have immediate and full recourse to Jesus. They know that all the power when they perform miracles that all that power comes from Christ. Christ is the source of their power. They immediately have recourse to Jesus. The man asks Jesus, if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus retorted, everything is possible for one who has faith. What an amazing statement. Everything, Jesus says, is possible for one who has faith. What the man says in reply is really something that we can take to prayer in the Lord. His reply is, I have faith, help my lack of faith. We can pray this way. Yes, we have faith, but Lord, increase my faith. So Jesus delivers the boy from the evil spirit. Afterwards, the disciples asked him when they were by themselves, why were we unable to drive it out? Jesus answered, This is the kind that can be driven out only by prayer. In some translations, you will find prayer and fasting. Jesus is telling us how absolutely essential prayer is, how absolutely essential union with Christ is. Union with Christ is our strength. Union with Christ is our power. We must be spiritual to fight the spiritual battles. 
And we become more spiritual the more closely we are united to Christ, especially in prayer. What is prayer if not union with the Holy Trinity? The more we pray, the more we recognize how totally dependent we are upon God for absolutely everything. We have recourse to him with every single thing. Not only the great things, the difficult things, but with regard to every small thing in our day. When we have recourse to prayer, our hearts are also healed. Our hearts are transformed. There is a purity, a cleansing in our hearts. We empty ourselves, we rid ourselves of all that is imperfect in us, evil. Because the more we talk to God, the more that we have to let that mass drop, we come face to face with the Lord, and we talk about what's real. We talk about the things of our heart. We beg God to help us in absolutely everything. This matter, the importance of prayer, is so critical in understanding life as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Christ. We find out one of the questions towards the end of this lesson deals with Jesus' teaching, which seems rather startling to us when he says to his disciples that it would be better... He talks about not scandalizing others through sin. And he says, it would be better if we would cut off our hand. If our hand leads to our downfall, if we sin, it's better to cut off our hand and to enter into eternal life crippled. The body will one day be whole and glorified anyway. But it's better to do that than to have two hands on earth and go into hell. It's better to cut off our foot if our foot causes us to sin and enter into eternal life crippled than to go through life with fullness of body but maimed in soul or spirit. In other words, to go to eternal damnation with our body intact but our soul is dead or is crippled. The same thing with the eye. He said it's better to pluck out your eye. And it sounds rather startling but Jesus is speaking to us about the total renunciation of sin of evil, of freeing ourselves from all that clings to us. This freedom, of course, can only be possessed by union with Christ. It is Jesus Christ who sets us free. We must resolve to live our lives in Christ and for Christ totally. We must have a desire to please God in all things. There must be nothing left in us that will permit or allow sin in our lives, as if it's small, as if a person could say, oh, I know that I I say a curse word every once in a while or swear, but you know, it's, it's not that bad. Nothing should be allowed. As Jesus says, avoid all silly, suggestive, and obscene language. All of this is wrong for you, he says. There must be a radicality to holiness and to embracing our life in Christ. This is not something that we can make great strides in apart from prayer, apart from the life of faith, apart from living the sacramental life of the church. So this union with Christ then is our strength. Finally, there is an interesting section where the apostles come to Jesus And remember, they have been able to deliver others from evil spirits. But John says to Jesus, 
Master, we saw someone who was not one of us driving out devils in your name. And because he was not one of us, we tried to stop him. Jesus said, You must not stop him. No one who works a miracle in my name could soon afterwards speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. We cannot be too humble in our own estimation, nor can we hope too much in the good that we discover in those around us. As God himself reveals, the Spirit blows where it pleases. Jesus tells us that you can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. We are surrounded by the works and the activity of God, and God himself uses us as his instruments. But we don't know, we cannot judge what goes on in another heart or the work that God is bringing about in another person, even when that takes us by surprise. As St. Paul says, there are many different gifts, but it's all one spirit. And remember, a bad tree, a rotten tree, cannot produce good fruit. If it's good fruit, if these are good works, then they are of God. There are many different gifts, but it's always the same spirit. There are many different forms of activity, but in everybody, it is the same God who is at work, bringing about one and the same plan, the salvation of all the people of the world, the holiness of absolutely each and every one of us. We are not the Lord of the harvest. Life is filled with surprises. We must let God be God. He knows what he is doing and how he goes about doing it. People do not pick figs from thorns, nor gather grapes from brambles. We can't help but recall here what John the Baptist himself says. No one, in all humility, says no one can have anything except what is given him from above. We should be only too happy when we discover in others goodness and the works of God. God is working in mysterious ways. No doubt, others must be surprised sometimes what they glimpse God doing in us. They don't understand it. Why that person? Why this particular way? God knows what he is doing, and it is one plan And it is a seamless plan, as the garment of Christ is seamless. It's woven together. God is bringing about his salvation for all people of the world. We sort of finish where we began with outside the church there is no salvation. That salvation comes through Israel. We must not forget that in the very beginning, when God chooses Israel and sets Israel apart, It is because he has a plan for the salvation of the world. When he makes a promise with Abraham, it is for the salvation of the world so that we can all one day be the children of Abraham. And how are we the children of Abraham? Through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is our Messiah, our Redeemer, our salvation, our holiness, and our power and our healing in this life. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George will be covering Mark chapters 10 and 11, which include the following four topics. Christ's teaching on marriage and divorce. Second, docility to reveal truth. Third, detachment from the world ourselves. And fourth, necessity of fruitful lives. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Thank you.